Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. And our ushers uh, have Bibles. If you need a Bible, please uh, go ahead and um, raise your hand, and they will be happy to pass one your way. If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take this with you, because it's so important for you um, to be able to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God at home. I mean, in fact, we had a great 6-4 this morning that was all about strapping on the, on the sword, which is actually the Word of God. And so our desire is for you to, um, to really get to know God better, get to know who He is, um, what He's all about, and, and truly how much He loves you. And so with that, what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of walk you through, at some level, um, my spiritual journey. Um, and, um, and I'm living proof that you can teach an old dog new tricks. Um, because over the last year, the Lord has really taught me something. Um, and so I'd like to kind of walk you through that as, as we go. Um, so if you can go ahead and put up the first, the first picture. Not quite the stick figures that you're probably used to. Um, if you've been in my class. But um, what, what we're looking to do is we're looking to try to see what a deeper spiritual journey looks like. That's what God is calling us to. We've heard that said many times before. What does that look like? Well, the first step along that way is that he becomes your savior. And uh, for me, uh, I was working at Northrop. We lived in, Marty and I lived in Albuquerque. We had one son. We moved to uh, back to California, where we had another, another son. Um, I was working at Northrop. I had a great job in terms of the responsibility that it gave me. Uh, at that point, I was the youngest executive at Northrop Grumman, so, or at Northrop at the time. So I was doing well from a work standpoint. They were making me travel all over the world. At that point in time, we still had a house in New Mexico that was bleeding whatever limited resources we had dry. Um, Marty would tell me about God, and yeah, 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 I've heard that. That's okay. Um, Because when I looked at myself, I was pretty squared away. Hey, look at who I am at work. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty awesome guy. Not that that, you know, being uh, prideful or arrogant was a problem that I had. But, (laughs) But when I looked out at the rest of the world, you know, they weren't near as good as me. So therefore, why wouldn't God, if there was one, want me in his kingdom? right? What is wrong with that? And so we we would have this um, tension because Marty was a believer and she knew there was more for me. And one day she announced to me, we're going to this concert. And it wasn't, would you like to go? It was, you know, at such and such a time, we're leaving and we're going to go to it. Um, I didn't know, but in the background, there was a spiritual battle going on, one which my less than one-year-old son had a fever over 100. And Marty said, that's an attack. All the more reason you need to get your butt in the car. And so being the typical male, I was totally oblivious to that. You know, Ryan is crying. Well, he's always crying. Um, But he he was not feeling well, and Marty said, I'm leaving him with my parents, and off we go. And we went went to this concert... um, 
The guy who was given it was a guy named Jeff Finholt, who was the lead singer from the um, rock band Black Sabbath. And when you think of Black Sabbath, that's where they were. They were dark. And he ultimately came to the Lord. And in the midst of this, this auditorium with hundreds of people in it, in the end, it became a conversation with me standing up, everybody else sitting down and having a conversation one-on-one. And at that point in time, um, I became a Christian. I accepted the Lord. So went home the next day. Everything was great. Sunday rolls around, and Marty says, you going to church? No. I said, why do I need to go to church? The guy said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and for whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal life. There you have it. I have eternal life. You take the kids, and I'll stay home, and I'll watch Popeye on TV. And so for an extended period of time, I lived as Christ is my Savior. He, I, you know, I knew I was saved. I believed his word. You know, I, uh, I believed in my heart, and I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And guess what? I am okie-dokie. So take the boys. I'll be in my comfy clothes. I'll watch the Popeyes, and then I'll deal with you when you come home. <laughs> and, and I lived that way, I don't know, six months. And, and of course, Marty was going, well, the, you know, really isn't a whole lot of change, but he believes, so what gives? And so finally, um, one of the ladies said to her in the Sunday school class, well, did you actually ask him to come? Well, no. She asked, why am I not coming? But she didn't actually invite me to come. And so that started really my deepening. Hey, come to, come to church. Because if you take the, go to the next slide, um, you, he can't be your Lord if you don't know anything about him. And so that began um, the, the next step in my personal evolution. Um, I, uh, I, I went to church, and then I begrudgingly went to Sunday school. And when I went to Sunday school... I had a bunch of guys who stood beside me. You know, we went to a Sunday school group that was probably one or two age groups older than we were. Um, And so I had older men who were willing to pour into me. Um, One of the guys, um, we were going to Bible study fellowship, and one of the guys said, you should come. And Marty had already, you know, kind of said you should go because she was going to Bible study fellowship and... Eh, no, I don't want to. The guy says, don't worry. I'll just be in your driveway. And so he shows up, pulls into the driveway. I look out, open the curtains, and I peek out. Yeah, there he is. Marty says, he's not going to leave. Oh, no, he'll get tired. He'll leave. No, no, I don't think he's going to leave. And, uh, and ultimately, he didn't leave until I climbed in the car, and off I went. But that started something in me. It lit the flame. I mean, the pilot light was on. You know, he was my savior. But the pilot light came on, and I really, at that point, dug into the word. Um, I mean, I was voracious. Um, I ended up teaching Sunday school because they, 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 they loved me into it. And I, I wouldn't be able to say that then, but that's what they ultimately ended up doing. Um, and they, and they brought me to a place where I could, um, could know about God in a clearer, 
uh, more understandable, more head knowledge kind of way. Um, and for me, um, John 15 kind of shows kind of where I was at. So John 15 says, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so I knew that I could do nothing unless I was with him. And so I abided in him by digging into his word as hard as I could. And in the midst of digging into his word, his spirit would, would, would talk with me, and I would be able to be empowered to do stuff. But, um, you know, there was a whole lot more to the story than just digging into his word. It says, if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As, um, as I grew to, um, in, my, in my quest to make Jesus my Lord, I focused on the part that says, if you do my commandments. Um, and if you do my commandments, then I will love you. And if you do my commandments, then I'm abiding. That's not what it says. It says if you abide, you do my commandments. So for me, that, it, it, this is, you know, it's been a long time learning this lesson. 30 years ago, um, I came to Christ and... I don't know, in the last 10 years, it's really become more evident to me that the abiding is really what's going on rather than the, um, the doing and being faithful to the commandments because that's the outgrowth. The fruit is the obedience, not the obedience uh, creates your place in the vine. Jesus continues in John 15... No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I have chose and appointed you that you may go and bear fruit, fruit, uh, and your fruit will abide. So whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And so again, Jesus picks us. He calls us out of the world to be our Savior, and then he calls us into a deeper relationship for him to be our Lord. And as an outgrowth of being the Lord, um, we go from being servants to being friends. As an outgrowth of, of that call to, um, uh, for him to be the Lord, we're called to bear much fruit. And we're called to, to, to love one another. That's all good. But if you come from a legalistic background, which I uh, tended to have, I mean, at my household, my, where my dad was, the rules were, uh, you know, pretty much what you needed to abide by. 
and he had pretty good ways to recalibrate you when you didn't follow those rules. Um, you know, my father flew into Vietnam on a, on a weekly basis from the Philippines. Mom, get out the list, put it on the, uh, uh, put it on the refrigerator with a magnet, and by the time my dad got home from Vietnam, there were a list of things that we needed to talk about. Um, speed the film up, I'm in sixth grade. Uh, in sixth grade, if you had, you know, I think it was six marks by your name, you were out in the hallway getting paddled. And there were, there were Mondays or Tuesdays where I'd be at five and I'd say, can we just go take care of it because I want to start fresh tomorrow, <laughs> right? Um, so for me, that legalism um, was something that, that I had to deal with. And, and, and it slowly but surely been opened my eyes over time. Um, that legalism is almost the picture you see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, where Jesus tells the churches of Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You're doing all these awesome things, but you've lost your first love. And again, not abiding, looking at the commandments. Um, we have a pair of uh, sandhills that, that live around the neighborhood. Um, and I don't know if it's a male or female sand, um, sandhill. When the two of them together, the one is normal, right? When it's just the, him, He's always pecking at my car because he can see his reflection. He's always pecking at the doors because he's trying to protect. And that's what I found myself doing, trying to protect. When Jesus isn't with me, I'm trying to protect. I I've got a bunch of rules, and you've broken the rule. Oh, you've done X. Well, that Christian doesn't do that. And so I start judging. And, uh, and I'm like that goofy, uh, that, that goofy sandhill crane because I'm not abiding, and when they're abiding, he's not being a goon. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I had a case where I was at a church. Um, they wanted to do a small group based on a name it and claim it book, and, um, and I knew that was wrong, and I was absolutely correct in the wrongness of what they were trying to do. But because I didn't abide, and because I was so focused on the commandment, I said some things, or actually I wrote it in an email, um, that weren't spoken in love. And I ended up, I was actually on a business trip. When I came back, I had a 13-page email waiting for me. Um, so again, um, I, was, I was focused on him being the Lord, but I was focused on the doing part of him being the Lord. Which brings me to the third place. Um, so if you go ahead and put that picture up. Christ has been my Savior for over 30 years. You know, for 29 plus, he's been my Lord. And I'm now moving into the place where he is ultimately my, my bridegroom or my beloved. And so before I get into that, I want to kind of lay a foundation for what does that mean. Um, the foundation is important for two reasons. First of all, because I don't want to lose you along the way. And second of all, because I'm ultimately going to go to a book that freaks a lot of people out. So I want to make sure that we haven't lost any before we go there. Um, and, but the second thing about that, or the third thing, is um, I have to admit, for a male, it's hard to view myself as a bride. And so there's a piece of that also that, that fits in um, 
you know, for biologically that, that I want to talk about. And so we need a picture of what that looks like before we can really truly understand it. So we'll start off in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter um, 5. Um, Pastor Troy is going to talk about this as we, um, as we get into it. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, even, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to go into that. That's not the purpose of why we're here. Um, but let me just tell you my heart. My heart is, if you love your spouse as Christ loves the church, submission is not something you ever need to worry about, right? We, we males can focus on the submit piece, and if you're doing that, you've already lost. So love, and then the rest of it will work itself out. Um, you know, I, I told people when we were in Leesburg, when I was planting the church there, um, or part of the church plant, you know, Guys, if you want marriage counseling, that's my first counsel to you. And for some reason, they never came to me. <laughs> so, um, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, so now the church submits to Christ, um, so the wives should also submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor that he might submit it to himself in, spl- in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body here on earth. Makes a lot of sense. The church should submit to Jesus. Haven't lost anybody there. He gave himself up for the church, which we can probably all relate. That's nothing there. He did it so he could sanctify her, cleanse her, to make her flawless. So he could present her to himself so that she could come as the bride into his holy presence. Paul concludes that section with, in the same way as husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ in the church. So what we have in Ephesians is the fact that Jesus loves, nourishes, and cherishes the church. Um, he does that to the church collectively, all of us sitting here today, and all those all over the world. And he also loves us as individuals because he became our Savior as, on an individual basis, and he became our Lord on an individual basis, and he becomes our bridegroom on an individual basis. I mean, it's interesting that your parents could be Christians, but that means nothing to your walk. And there are a lot of people who end up being culturally Christian, probably less in this age, uh, who, who are living off the coattails of, of what their parents have brought them. And, um, and both of our boys went through 
um, crises of faith where they were actually cut loose from our hotels and had to figure out who they were on their own. Um, that is a scary, unfun time. Um, I mean, Marty one year wanted to cancel Christmas. Uh, wanted to cancel Christmas and send him back to wherever he came from. I mean, that was, go, you know, go back to college. Um, but, but you can't. So he calls us in an individual way, yet the picture he gives us is one of bride, bridegroom, husband, and wife, and that's the mystery. So the first piece of understanding the bride versus the bridegroom is right here uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, and Pastor Troy will go into much more detail and probably way more eloquent than I did in just those couple of minutes. Paul continues that motif in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. This is the church of Corinth, for the individuals and the body, since I betrothed you to one husband. Um, The betrothal period in in ancient... um, ancient times for the Hebrews was a period where they were as as good as married, but they weren't married yet. So he's betrothed us to one husband, that husband who is Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that the serpent has deceived you, deceived Eve by his cunning, and your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to the Lord. So Paul continues that thought that the bride of Christ is the church. He is our bridegroom. We are betrothed to Christ. Jesus himself, in Mark chapter 2, calls himself the bridegroom, where he says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast in that day. So what is he saying? I am the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. We get another glimpse in, uh, in Revelation chapter 16, where it says that the bride, us, individually and us collectively, has made herself ready um, for the marriage supper of the Lord. That happens right before he returns physically back to the earth. In Revelation 22 the spirit and the bride call Jesus to return. So again, oh, there we have it. Come, let one who is thirsty come. Let one who um, desires the water of life without price. So come. They say to, to collectively together, come. So we are the bride. So therefore, that must mean that he is the bridegroom. So if we go back to our little picture, um, on the path of ever-deepening relationship, this is what we need to strive for, that Christ ultimately becomes our bridegroom. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, you know, those are all good words. Uh, makes you scratch your head. Okay, the bride, I get that really easy to understand in kind of a tangible way, you know, when the church. No, what does that relationship look like between uh, man and wife, between um, bride and, uh, and bridegroom? And you look through Scripture and you don't really see a good picture until you come to the Song of Solomon. 
okay? Um, and a lot of you right now are going, okay, shut it down. Um, you know, because there's a lot of interesting things out there about the book. Um, I was looking at something this morning where, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are tied up in the sex piece of it. And, and they would say something, and then they would say, the, the commentator would say, I think this is a euphemism for. Okay, well, I don't want to know what you think. I actually want to know what you know. And there isn't a whole lot of knowing because the book is um, a bunch of poems linked together, a song. It's called the Song of Songs. I mean, that's the, like verse one. Um, you know, it's poetical, and, and because it's poetical, you can't read it like you would Hebrews or, or, or Romans. Um, because it's a psalm, you have, or because it's a picture, you have um, illustrations in it that for us who don't live in a, an agrarian society don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of, 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 um, of poems that don't rhyme, right? I mean, I'm kind of a, a literary, you know, simpleton. I like Dr. Seuss. If it rhymes, I can follow it as it goes through. This is nowhere near like this. And in, um, and in this book, there are a lot of pictures. But the principal picture you need to realize is this is, um, if you will, a stage that is being set. There are many scenes in the stage. The principal characters are the beloved, the bridegroom, the second principal character is the, the bride. And every once in a while, you have a group of people um, who, as part of the chorus, come in and say something or, or move it along. Um, the, uh, what's interesting about the book, first of all, is it's told from the bride's point of view. And she's the one who's actually doing most of the speaking. And so we will hear from her, and then she, what she's saying will be reinforced by the, by the bridegroom. Um, when I was praying about, you know, what should I do about this, I mean, and I've been like a moth kind of drawn to the flame of the, of the Song of Solomon for a while. And Marty says, no, no, you're not going to teach that any time soon, right? Um, and, and, you know, like I was thinking, you know, maybe do it as a, you know, Tuesday night kind of class. Um, she was right, because I'm not ready. There's just so much more in there that I need to internalize and be able to understand before I can, um, I can really teach it. But I'm telling you where I'm at today, so I, I feel confident knowing that the Lord is, is, is taking me into a deeper place. And so I want to just, I, I want to call you to come with me into that deeper place. Um, because I lived 30 years here, and I've lived the last year you know, popping in and out of this place. And I'm here to tell you, this is a much more awesome place than this. Um, so the Lord kind of impressed on me this. The song uses picture of courtship and marriage as a backdrop for my love for people to be displayed. I am the beloved and you are my people, the woman. I love her in spite of who she is, uh, in spite of what she looks like, in spite of her stational life, or what she has done. I desire her to know me and to know herself deeper in the process. I desire her to want more and more of my presence, to look and search for me, to want me in more and more intimate ways. 
And so that's why I'm digging in to, to the Song of Solomon. I'm going to go through and pick a couple passages out um, uh, and, and just, to, um, just to walk you through. I mean, again, um, the interpretation that, um, that I'm going to be giving you is an allegory. Allegories are okay. Paul uses an allegory in, um, in Galatians chapter 4 when he talks about Hagar and Sarah comparing the woman who gave birth to a slave and the woman who gave birth to a free man or the person who represents Sinai versus the person who represents Jerusalem. So the fact that it's, a, um, that it's actually an allegory is you know, nothing to be that scary. What's scary is when you say God so loved the world he gave his only son, and you say, okay, I'm going to allegorize that, and that means everybody should have a Ferrari, right? That, that's where you get goofy. This is meant to be looked at um, for the literary pictures it provides, and then the story, uh, the story comes out of that. Um, this, this, um, looking at it this way is nothing new. Um, the Jewish sages viewed the Song of Solomon as basically a love song between God and the Jewish people. Um, the early church fathers viewed it the same way. So you can go look for the euphemisms, and they're there, um, assuming that you understand what they mean in modern-day English compared to, you know, 2,000 years ago. Um, but I prefer to look at it as God's picture is how does he want me, the bride, to live and walk today, growing ever closer and closer to him. So that's what we're going to go look at. And so when I tell you, hey, it's not really that scary, verse 2 of the book freaks you out. So go ahead, and what's verse 2? Okay, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Okay, you know, you immediately go, well, wait a minute, I thought you said this is a picture. Well, it still is. Um, when you dig down below what that means, what's your first and foremost desire? She wants to be so intimate with him that... She's looking at his face, face to face, lip to lip. You can't get any closer than that. When you're seeing someone at that, that level of closeness, you actually have to hear what they say. You just can't blow them off. You actually have to want to do that. That's her desire is, I want to be so close to the bridegroom that he is, as, as Warren used to say, in my grill. Right? right there, in my dugout. I want to be so close to him that, um, that I'm in his presence. She craves that face-to-face -face intimacy. Um, there is nothing in the whole world, even wine doesn't compare. The most earthly, uh, pleasurable thing is nothing compared to her desire to be right there face-to-face -face with him. Um, we were at, uh, at visiting Charles, who, who lives in a nursing home, on, uh, on Friday. And he's 90 years old. He was a pastor for 60 years. He still is a pastor. He he's not was a pastor. He's been a pastor for over 60 years. He still is a pastor. And, uh, um, and his question of the day was, what does the hunger of God look like? What does it mean to hunger God? What it means to hunger God is the desire to be so close to him that, that you could be kissing. Kissing, you know, in and of itself um, uh, is, is a way to, to display love. Um, 
you know, a couple months ago, Jim Camilleri passed away. But every time he saw me as he walked into church, he would walk up to me and give me the most heartfelt hug and kiss. And, you know, I've never had a man overflow me with that kind of, that kind of emotion and that kind of devotion and that kind of love. And that was Jim just being Jim. You know, um, I didn't get that kind of affection from my dad. But from another brother who God truly loved, he displayed it because he wanted to get face-to-face with me. And because I was trained in that, how good it was, when we get done visiting Charles, we all give him a big hug and a kiss. In the same way, and just to hear his laugh, and just to, his heart just expand, was, is phenomenal. So don't get messed around with those kind of words because they're a deeper picture of what God really wants. And if you really want to have your mind blown, in the original Greek, um, the word worship is made up of two words. The first word is towards, and the second word is kiss. So when you're worshiping, truly worshiping, you are kissing towards the object of that worship. So you guys, like me, need to ask him to kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Because that's what we're called to do. To worship him, to be in his presence, to be that close to him that we can see who he is and that allows him to to help us open ourselves up so we can know ourselves deeper and deeper. Which leads me to the next point. Um, next slide. Next. In um, the, the, the bride is telling people, telling the, the, the bridegroom not to look at her. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards, but I did not keep, my, but my own vineyard was not kept. And so what she's saying is, Unlike all the women in court who spend their day doing whatever they do and never go outside, I'm less because I'm outside all day long and I'm sunburned. Um, The sun looked on me. My mother's sons were angry because I did or didn't do what they wanted me to do. As punishment, I was made to work. I did the world's work. I didn't necessarily do the bridegroom's work. Um, and because of the work I'm doing, I neglected things that I was supposed to do. So she was unworthy because of her appearance, um, which was caused by some behavior that she assumed was her fault. And she was unworthy because she had fallen short and failed to take care of the things that she should have taken care of the things that represented her vineyard. But what does the bridegroom say when when he looks at him? You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. We sing a song, Here I Am to Worship, and the words say, You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. 
What he is saying here, the bridegroom, when he looks across and he sees us, he doesn't see us where we are today. He doesn't see us how far we've come. He sees us where he is taking us to be. And when he sees us, he says, you're altogether beautiful. He effectively could read the words of that song, you're altogether lovely, you're altogether worthy, and you're altogether wonderful to me because what he sees is his finished work. That's where he desires to take us to. And so um, we end up stepping back from that intimacy with him, or I should say we, I end up stepping back because I know my shortcomings. I know my foibles. I know my problems. I know my sin. Uh, you know, and so what happens is I look at me and say, I cannot go there. I can't go there. And of course, in who I am of myself, I can't. But he says, I don't see the person that you think you see. I see the person who you are, the real you, the person at the end of the line, not the person now. Can you imagine how much fun church would be if we could turn around and we would live life with the people around us, living it out as, they, as God has created them to be, not who they are now, not who they were, because you, you know, there are people who hold grudges, but who God has ultimately taken them and is going to put them to be. What a cool place would it be if we all as church were seeing that perfected, flawless individual that God is making us to be. Yeah. Sermons would probably be a whole lot shorter. Uh, no flaw in you. When we read, when we read um, Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleaned her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Holy and without blemish. Yeah. That's what he's called. That's what he wants to do. And, and he's doing that so that he can say, all y'all are all together, all together beautiful. You're all together beautiful as a group, and you're all together individ as individuals. Even art is all together beautiful. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, I, I mean, again, can you feel the, um, the walls come down? Because when you realize that he sees you as that flawless person, perfect human being, why wouldn't you want to be where he is? You know, Romans chapter 12 says we're to give ourselves as a, as a living sacrifice. Um, I was reading in Deuteronomy that uh, it's like a bozo no-no to give a, um, a sacrifice that has a blemish. So we can't give ourselves as a living sacrifice if we ourselves are flawed. And so, again, that's what he what he tells us to do. He says, uh, she says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. She requests him to take her away. 
that arrow coming down that you saw that shows uh, the deepening relationship, that deepening relationship is only stopped by one person. It's the one, yeah, it's Alex. He, he admitted it. He just pointed to himself. Yeah, it's, we all be deeper, but no, Alex, he just, no. It's us. It's the person in the mirror who chooses not to be drawn after. Draw me. Let us run. Because he brought me into his chambers, into that quiet place, into the place of one-on-one. And again, um, when you get into the chambers, um, you end up finding it's a place of, of um, where love is better than any other earthly um, pleasure. Verse 7 says, Tell me who my soul loves. Where do you pass your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like the one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? I don't want to be near somebody who's near the Lord. That's what she's saying. I want to be near you. I don't want to be like one who wears her veil besides the flocks of your command. Where are you grazing your sheep? That's where I want to be. Um, I went through a period of time um, after, after we got done with the Leesburg plant where I hid myself in service. And so I felt very comfortable. I felt very good being around those who are around God. And in the meantime, I ended, up, I ended up fooling myself that I was actually closer to God. So don't let yourself be, hey, Troy is uh, awesome in terms of how close he is to God, so if I just have lunch with him, then I've done something. No. You have to go and desire to be with him uh, yourself. Um, he calls us in, in verse Eight, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, um, uh, my, the voice of the beloved comes. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains. He, you can hear him calling out, I'm coming. He's speaking to us individually. I am coming. And the desire is, you know, to go with him when he comes. Uh, behold, my, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind behind our wall, gazing through its windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away. As we're fat, dumb, and happy in our safe little worlds, he comes and he calls us to go with him. And he calls us to go with him to where? Where he's at work, where he is in the field with his, his sheep, where he is spreading his love abroad. Come away with me. And so sometimes very easy, up and we go. Other times, not so much. Um, chapter 5 is an example of that not so much. That's why this book is so good because you can see the ups and the downs of the relationship between the, um, the bridegroom and the bride. So here's a point where um, he comes and, and she effectively delays and, and, and he goes away. I slept, in my, uh, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. The bridegroom is coming back. He's worked all night long. He's out in his field. He's doing what the bridegroom does. He comes in 
and she is um, sitting there with her fuzzy slippers on, all safe and sound, and he's knocking. And she says, um, I have put off my garment. How could I put it on? I have bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled, thrilled within me. Again, she was listening for him. She heard him, but she was too comfy, cozy, and he grabbed the door and shook on it. Now, notice he didn't say, why is the door locked? He didn't, he didn't um, cause her any, uh, condemn her for that. He's just calling her to come. So ultimately, in verse 5, she arises. I arose uh, to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, the handles on the handles on the boat. I opened, my, um, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when, I, when he spoke. I sought him. I found him not. I called, but he gave no answer. So the picture is she was so safe, secure in where she was that when he called, she didn't respond. And ultimately, when she did respond, the first thing she did was to perfume herself. So again, she looked at her before she followed. And by the time she got to where, uh, where the door was that was locked and opened it up, he was gone. I got two examples uh, in my own life of this. Years ago, um, there was a lady in our church named Susan Bailey. And she, uh, her husband had come down to, um, to Leesburg to, um, to learn how to work on, mo- on, on boat engines. And so they went back to their home in, um, in Virginia. And, uh, and they were at the lake one day, and she ended up getting an infection, an e- uh, a, um, that's not important, what, what e-, e. coli infection, e. coli infection in her blood. And they ultimately had to you know, um, amputate her legs. Um, but in the midst of it, she had super high temperature. There wasn't, they weren't sure she was going to make it through the night. And so we were at church on a Sunday, and I was doing stuff and got done doing the stuff I was doing, and everybody was in front was praying. And they were screaming and crying out for God to heal her. And so I walked in, sat in the back of the sanctuary, um, and, uh, and God very clearly said, she's going to live. Just whisper, she's going to live. And here are all these people. I can hear the prayers from the front of the sanctuary. And I have the answer to that prayer. So, God's knocking, and I'm not saying nothing. Why? Because I'm looking at me. And now, it, it, it's, it's a crummy story, but it's a story I can tell. But I think, I look back at it, he was at the door, and he was knocking, and I was so focused on, well, what happens if I'm wrong, that I chose to say nothing. And so me telling everybody afterwards, that's what he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You really are a prophet. You, you saw what the answer was, and then you told us. That's pretty cool. Um, that's not, you know, that is, to me, a picture of that. Let me, let me tell you another picture. Um, last week ago, Tuesday, I guess it was, um, Troy had decided that he, you know, that he, he was having um, this trip he was going to go on, and I think it was Nina said, so who's going to preach for you? And, uh, you know, and Troy kind of gave a look like, I don't know. 
And so later on that afternoon, he talked to, to, to Paul and I. And, uh, you know, I, I heard the voice. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I didn't want to do it. But I kept praying. Really, is this what you want? And he's saying, hey, why do you think I pointed you to the book of Song of Solomon? All those years, you know, all those, you know, months ago. To prepare you to be able to do what you're doing. So, um, so I opened up the latch and here I am. So, um, and, uh, and, and we'll do one more and then, then, I'll, then I'll go. The last one, um, go, go to the next verse. Um, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Um, this is a really cool picture. Um, because the Lord is so precious, she wears him as close to her heart as she can get. Um, she desires to be in his presence all the time. She desires the sweet-smelling fragrance to overwhelm the rest of her senses. Um, Christ wants to live in us and through us so that we could be a, his sweet-smelling fragrance to those around us. And in fact, in um, 2 Corinthians you know, chapter 2, it talks about us being a fragrance of life to those who are living and a fragrance of death to those who aren't. But the choice is hers. Because she could have that fragrance sitting in that sachet and it could be in her drawer. And it does her no good. So that's a conscious choice that she makes. She, um, she desires to have all of him that she can handle. Um, when we went and visited Jim um, Camilleri, um, probably a couple days, a week before he died, after we got through the perfunctory hellos, the very first out of, uh, words out of his mouth is, let me tell you how God showed me he loved me. Let me let you smell that myrrh that he has overwhelmed me with so that you can, you can soak it in as well. That's the bridegroom, the beloved, that we need to make sure we get as close as we can to. So as the, as the band comes, um, or is the worship team, or whatever the official name is, <laughs> comes on up, I'd ask that the prayer counselors would also come up, and I would, um, I would like to, to basically um, leave you with this. Um, whoa, it's quite the group. Yeah. When Troy's here, it's like two people. Um, so, uh, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so, what I would ask you today is that, and you can go to that la the next picture, where are you on this, on the red arrow, right? 
Where are you on, the, on your relationship with God? If you spend 30 years of your life like I did in between Christ as the Lord and Christ as my, my uh, bridegroom, God is not unhappy with that because he puts you on the path. Yet he calls you to deeper and deeper and deeper thing, uh, relationship with him. He desires for you to know that he sees you without flaw. He saw you without flaw when he was your savior. He saw you as you are working through him being the Lord. He sees you without flaw now. And so if you see yourself as he sees you, then it's easy to step into that throne room. It's easy to say, I belong to be here. While the rest of the world is saying, do you know what you did? No, I don't know what I did. I know what my Savior did. And I'm here because my Savior invited me. This is not like um, Esther who has to wait for the scepter to be pointed. This is the bridegroom who says, honey, come to me. Be with me. See me. I want to see you be that person I'm calling you to be. And I want you to do it here. I don't want you to wait until you get to heaven to be the person that I've called you to be. I want you to be that person now. I want you to live that life now. So I would just, I would just ask that you would, um, that you would pray about where are you on that continuum. You know, maybe you're not a, not a believer yet. Christ isn't your savior. Now is the time. Maybe you're struggling with what does it mean um, for him, uh, him to be my Lord. I mean, what do I got to give up? You don't have to give up anything. You get to get. That's the world telling you you have to give, give up. You know, I mean, you can have all the sins you want. I, I'd rather have less and have more of him. Lord, we just thank you. We just thank you that um, your love is beyond understanding. It's beyond expectation. It's beyond our ability to understand. And if it was something we could understand, then you wouldn't be the God who you are. Lord, we're thankful that you take us right where you are. You don't look at us and say, hey, why aren't you already here? You say, I want to walk with you to get there. That you want to turn the path that is always uphill into a flat path so that you can walk beside holding our hand as we go through. You desire us in a way that we can never understand. And so, Father, I just I just submit as, as much as I can physically to your son. And I ask you to spiritually purge the rest of me that stops me from doing that. Lord, I just ask that you continue to work in me to see myself as you see me and to have the desire to be face-to-face with you all the time. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.